You're listening to a talk which is part of our Restore series. We hope this series will help people understand what it means to be a restorer and how this impacts our actions and attitudes when dealing with both the church and secular culture. For more information, other resources and media, please visit citychurchleads.net. Well, that's blessed me already. Let's uh, call me a gentleman. <laughs> well, it's a real blessing to be with you again, and uh, uh, I, I've had such a warm welcome. We brought Tom with us, a, a young man in our church, and he seems to feel that I'm well known here. Well, there's about three of you know me, yeah. and you've given me such a warm welcome that it seems like 103, that it really is good to be with you. Anyway, as Mike has indicated, I've been asked today, this is the way I'm putting it, to talk on the proposal that the church has been called to engage the culture of the society in which we find ourselves. Uh, And I think probably at this point I need to pack my bags and go home. (laughs) Because I'm not sure, I don't really believe that we have been called to engage the culture of the society in which we live. I don't believe that that is our call. I do believe that we have been called to engage the people amongst whom we live. And in that engagement, we will transform the culture and bring about a restoration of God's original intention of filling the earth with a people expressing a kingdom culture. Now, I think we need to understand this. This is important. I really believe we are called to engage people, not particularly a culture. Uh, We had a, a two or three years ago now, uh, a young man was brought to, uh, young, well, he's not young to some of you, but he's young to me. (laughs) A young man was brought to our church. To the best of my knowledge, he'd never been to church before. He was a young man. He was in his mid to late thirties, had a very difficult upbringing, and um, one of his sisters had been adopted by another man, uh, another couple, and this other couple obviously had some sort of contact with this man for many years. And uh, somehow this man, uh, Tom shall we say, felt that this younger fellow would benefit from A, going to church, and B, meeting Pat and me. So he brought him along, and I didn't know him, and he didn't know me. He'd had no church experience. So in the British culture, what would be the normal pattern for me to actually greet him for the first time? Shake his hands in true British fashion. I never thought anything about it. I threw my arms around him and said, Charlie, it's good to greet you. Didn't think anything about it. Two years later, he tells me, and he's told me several times since, that the thing that impacted him was that I gave him a hug. He says, I've never been given a hug before. Now, what I did unwittingly For me personally, I brought a kingdom culture into that situation and I impacted that man. Because, I'll tell you what, I had to learn to hug. 
There was a time when I was a good, stiff, uh, upper lip British man. Not only that, but Christian. And I would greet people like this. I remember uh, in one of my semi-rebellious days, we went to a church. We were on holiday. We went to this church. It was a sister church at that time. It wasn't, we were in the Brethren. And I went and walked in the door, and there's a whole bunch of people stood around there, some sort of welcoming committee, and they didn't do anything. And I just looked and said, don't anybody shake hands here? Well, I'll tell you what, they most certainly didn't hug. Now, I'm just making the point that if I'd have engaged that young man's culture, I'd have missed something. But it was something I just did, and it impacted him. Because he was a lad that had experienced rejection, suddenly he meets a man he's never known before who's thrown their arms around him. Story in the Bible. Jesus met a woman at a well. Anybody tell me what surprised that woman first? That Jesus would have anything to do with it? He spoke to her. He spoke to her. She says, what are you doing speaking to me? Because a party had become part of the Jewish culture. There was a reason if they went back several hundred years for it. But that's what most culture is about anyway. That the Jews don't have anything to do with the Samaritans. A characteristic was they didn't have anything to do. And suddenly a man comes into a life. He'd never met her before. And he did something that they just don't do. Not only that, he spoke to a woman. Well, you know the story. Or maybe you don't know the story. This woman's life was in an absolute mess. And in a few brief moments, Jesus turned that woman's life round, upside down. Not only that, but turned the whole village life round where she lived. Because he stepped over the border of culture. Let me just read you something which some of you may have read, but I find very exciting. Uh, this is a BBC News item, and it's from uh, 19, uh, sorry, 2010. This bloke says, at first glance, it looks as though it could be any other factory driving the rapid development of the Chinese economy. But this is no ordinary enterprise, because here, religious faith is as important as profit. This is China. In fact, the owner of the Botelli Valve Group in Ventsu, I hope there's no Chinese here, would like to see all his staff convert to Christianity. And such a factory is not a one-off. It is part of a growing number of businesses run by Christian entrepreneurs in one of China's key enterprise zones, whose success is now being studied by the Chinese government. As he shows the production facilities, the factory's general manager, Wang Zhen Wao, tells me that every month, three million pounds worth of industrial valves are manufactured. About 40% of the factory's output is exported to businesses worldwide. But he seems to have limited interest in the sales figures. He's far more concerned to tell me about the place his family's Christian faith has in the life of the factory. Wang Zhen Wao believes that by encouraging increasing numbers of his staff to convert to Christianity, his business will prosper. And he tells me that when staff do convert to Christianity, their attitude towards their work is transformed. 
If you're a Christian, you're more honest with a better heart, he says. The people who aren't Christians aren't responsible. I think it's very different. One of the workers I met who had recently converted to Christianity explained that he had known nothing about the religion before he started work at the factory. But he said that his newfound faith was now a source of daily inspiration. He told me he was now trying to convert his friends and colleagues to Christianity. If everybody became a Christian, it would have a very big impact and would really help the development of our factory, he said. So I asked Mr. Wow how much religion was a factor when he was recruiting new staff. Of course, I would cho choose the Christians first, definitely, he said. Such comments could prompt accusations of discriminatory practice in some countries, but he had no doubt about the sort of impact Christianity could have on Chinese business. I think if all enterprises absorb this Christian culture, we will have a much more harmonious society, he said. The wider role of Christian entrepreneurs in the economic success of the Wenzhou private enterprise zone has not gone unnoticed by the Chinese government. Far from being regarded as a religious oddity, the impact of Christian-run businesses is now being studied by Chinese government officials. Professor Zhu Jingzing, or somebody, director of the Institute of World Religions, they need to come to the English culture so we can understand their words. This professor specializes in the study of Christian, Christianity's growing influence in China and has plenty to say about the Wenzhou's Christian entrepreneurs. He tells me the city was visited by substantial numbers of Western Christian missionaries during the 19th century and that has, by, by Chinese standards, a long history of Christian faith. Today, it has an unusually high number of Christians for a, Christ a Chinese city, with some estimates suggesting Christians now make up 20% of the population. But what really interests him is the way in which the growth of Christianity and economic prosperity have happened side by side. He tells me that Chinese researchers are considering whether in Western history there is a link between economic prosperity and Protestant Christianity, and they are questioning what that might mean for today's China. It's very important to find the secret of social development, the so-called potential forces for a nation, he says. When it comes to Western countries, the majority Chinese understanding is that this potential force is Protestant Christianity. Christian faith may sound like an unlikely component in China's future economic success. But the notion that newfound faith can inspire a workforce to increase levels of productivity is being taken seriously not only by Chinese businessmen, but by China's communist and officially atheist leaders. A Chinese culture is being affected positively in the workplace. It's affecting real life. It's affecting real things because they are bringing different attitudes. And this is what we're called to do. You know, the sad thing is that isn't always replicated in this country. You know, some of the worst people to employ Christians because Christians can take things for granted. That needs to come as a challenge to us. 
but they see something different. They refer to it as a Christian culture that is invading their culture, and they want it because it's starting to touch their pockets. Okay, it may be mercenary, but the society is better off. They say it's more harmonious. It'll lead to a more harmonious society. Let's look at a few scriptures, shall we, that impinge upon this subject. Because I believe it's clear that Christians are not to be a part of this world's system. Would somebody read, please, John 17, verses 14 to 16. John 17, verses 14 to 16. I've given them your word, and the world takes them, because they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I pray now that you should take them from the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Sorry. Yeah. I pray not that you should take them from the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. What does Jesus here say about his disciples? Regarding the world. They are not of the world. Do you know the sad thing is too many Christians are trying to be of the world. And that's easy. It is easy. The challenge for us is to engage in a meaningful way. Romans 12, verse 2. Would somebody else like to read this? Now, don't hesitate. Jump out and read it. If I do this in India, I'll tell you what, they're in straight away. Maybe it's a different culture. <laughs> Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that, that, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's right. The New International Version says, do not conform any longer to, be the, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. A few of the translations, Amplified says this, do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adapted to its external superficial customs, but be transformed or changed by the entire renewal of your mind by its new ideals and its new attitude. Notice that emphasis, external and superficial, because often that's where many people want to touch. The message translation or message version says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Interesting. J.B. Phillips, I'm sure many of you realize it says this, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold because they want to take whatever's different and squeeze it into its mold. Because culture often, as it were, wants to repel something that's a bit different. And the world wants it. It says, no, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. 
It's clear that as the people of God, there has to be a distinction between us and those who have not received Christ as Lord. There has to be a distinction. I'll, just, I'll come back to that, but let me just say, what, what is culture? Would anybody like to say what culture is? Like to suggest what it is? It's the way that everybody accepts certain things as normal. When you come to Britain, there, is, there are certain patterns of behavior. Every, if you talk to the Americans, everybody loves queuing. It's a cultural thing. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. I remember when we lived in Matlock, and there was this vegetable, they had a little market vegetable stall on. And you'd go down to the market, it was covered in, you think, oh, flipping it. There's a great queue coming out of this vegetable stall. So what I would do, I would go inside and just hang around at the other end of the queue. And then in a very short time, one of the assistants say, can I help you, sir? Of course you can help me. It's better than being 20 down the line, isn't it? Breaking the culture. There are certain patterns that define a society or a group. I have a couple of definitions here. Those patterns, traits, products considered as an expression of a particular period, class, community or population. The Edwardian culture, Japanese culture, Yob culture. Do we have to become a Yob to win Yobs? But there are elements of culture, the predominating attitudes and behavior that characterize the functioning of a group or organization. Culture is not necessarily wrong, but it is defining. It defines the sort of society in which we live. There are these particular characteristics, but there have to be differences from those who are God's people from the world at large because the kingdom of God has a particular culture. And my, my mission this morning is not to talk about what that culture is particularly, but if you look right at the very beginning when Adam and Eve and God and all that, you can pick out clear elements of culture there. One of which was they were hard-working. They were expected to be hard-working. That was the mission that God had given them. And it's interesting that in this Chinese example, what came through was the hard-working nature. You can pick out certain things. But there has to be differences. Would somebody like to read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19 and 20? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19 and 20. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together... It isn't the Lord's Supper you eat. That's fine. Paul here is talking to Christians. Talking about divisions and what have you. And he says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When God's approval is there, there will be differences. One of the reasons there's differences in that Chinese factory was God's approval were on those who loved him and who worked in a way that pleased him, and the differences were obvious. Now, I, I want to submit to you that if 
within the community of God's people, the differences show where God's approval lies. Surely, that's also the case in society. Let's look at a, an Old Testament scripture, shall we? Exodus 33, verse 15 and 16. Again, somebody read it. Exodus 33, verse 15 and 16. Come on, you need to match the China the Indian church. You need to be quicker than this. There's one at the back there. Exodus 33, 15 and 16. It says, Then Moses said to him, if, you, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Okay. What else will distinguish God's people from all the other people on the face of the earth? There's got to be something that's different. Moses says there's got to be something that's different. If you don't come with us, what else will distinguish? There is nothing else that will distinguish God's people but the presence of God that is expressed in various ways. The presence of God is not ephemeral. It's not goosebumps. It is shown. You know, when God marched in this same chapter before Moses, He declared His goodness. He declared, he declared those characteristics that affected people. And Moses is saying, there has to be a distinguishing factor. And that's brought about by the presence of God with His people. There are some Christians who feel, I don't want to be different. I do want to be different. I do want to be different. Many, many years ago, uh, many years, it's surprising when you get old like me, how many, many becomes. This was many years ago. I worked in uh, Leicester. Uh, no, we left Leicester in 19, when did we leave Leicester? Sweet? 85. So it's many years ago. And uh, I, I was part of a, a scientific unit. And one day this young fella said to me, so have you had a good weekend? I said, yeah, I've had a good weekend says, what you've done? I said, well, I can't remember exactly, but it was something like we had a conference on the Saturday, went along to that, and then Sunday morning we had the, our usual church gathering. Oh, you, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. Now, the thing is, I hadn't stood on the workbench and told them. And I didn't get out my Bible in full view of them and read every morning in the office. I've got a job to do. He says, do you know, I knew there was something different. I have never heard you swear. Now that's interesting. Because I was a part of that community. And I did what they did. And we laughed at some of the same things together. But there was something different. He didn't know what it was. He couldn't put his finger on it. But when we had that little conversation, Ah, he said, I see it now. There has to be something that's different. Matthew 5.13 says, you're the salt of the earth. Matthew 5.14 says, you are the light of the world. Light has influence. Light changes things. But light doesn't become a part of it. Light doesn't have to become darkness to change the environment in which it finds itself. Hear my heart on that. Salt. Salt. Salt infiltrates 
Salt is salt. It can be separated out. It's only a little bit, and it changes everything. It gives a totally different flavor. Jesus says, you are salt, you are light, you're going to influence. Now, all I've done up to press is present an argument for not engaging the culture. <laughs> Over the years, some Christians have tried to avoid the culture. They've gone into monasteries. I, I don't find any biblical basis for that. I find no biblical basis for a life in a monastery. But equally, I find no biblical basis for becoming so like the culture in which I live that you can't tell the difference. And then there are Christians who work hard not to be different. If you've had an encounter with God, you cannot help but be different. It might not stand out like a sore thumb, but it will be there. We do need to recognize the behavior patterns of the community in which we live. If we are going to engage people, we need to find bridges to walk across. Whoever you're going to engage, there is no point in me going into Leeds University. I just don't look a bit like a student. First of all, I'd need to get a pair of jeans and cut holes in the knees. I'd never wore a pair of jeans in my life. I'd have to throw away my matching shirts and socks. It just isn't cool. Odd socks would match better. Trainers. Wow, I'd have to wear tra trainers and jeans. Dear, oh dear. Somehow or other, I would have to, some, I would have to find some point of contact. The bridges that we walk across quite often are cultural. And we need to understand when there are cultural bridges to walk across and we need to be prepared to engage. We cannot expect a community to meet us on our cultural terms. That's why there's so much said about being out there. That's why this is so important. The poor people who need this will not come in here unless there's something that grabs them because there's an element of our society that have a culture of poverty. We are most definitely not called to emphasize our differences. In my heart, that that makes us different is the presence of God. The approval of God upon us will mark all the difference that needs to be That's made. We don't have to, oh, I don't do that. I don't do that. God challenged me some years ago, and it was a Christian setting, but we, we went to ballroom dancing lessons, and we had to fill in the form. It was a, I'll tell you what, it was a challenge going to the ballroom dancing lesson because I was in a church where you don't dance. But my wife wouldn't dance with another fella at the works do, so I had to go out and learn how to dance. And we signed up, and this young couple borrowed our pen. And we became friends, and we didn't invite them to church. We invited them swimming. We invited them back for a meal. And we did that week after week, didn't we? 
and what have you. And eventually they had a child, and, which is a long story, but I won't go into. But they invited, she was a Catholic. He was a nothing. Nice couple. And they invited us to the child's christening. Of course, it was Sunday afternoon. And of course, we had our church meeting Sunday afternoon in Leicester. And I was one of the elders. How could I miss Sunday afternoon as a church elder to go to a christening where they don't even dip them under the water? I don't believe in it. But we wanted to win somebody. Maybe 10 years earlier, I wouldn't have done it, but I, I was enlightened. So I, we went along. We went along. And, but before we did that, we said, we'll, we'd love to come. However, we'd like to tell you what our understanding of baptism is. We went along, we stood with them. Now, eventually, that couple, couple became Christians. She was a Catholic. It's a long story, very interesting story. Part of the church in Keithley. But we met them where they were at. They were of a particular cult, Christian persuasion. But that has its own cultural identity also. Part of the church in Leicester, not Keithley. Would, uh, would somebody please like to read 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23? As you're looking that up, let me just say, you've got groups like the Hamish. Now, we don't have Hamish around here, but you see them in America, who love to emphasize their difference. I don't think we're called to do that. Has anybody got, have we got a reader? Uh, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 23. This is under a, a heading of serving all men in, in my Bible. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I become as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I become as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Okay, now that's interesting, isn't it? It says, in my words, to win the Jews, I'll adopt the Jewish culture. To win the Gentiles, I'll adopt the Gentile culture. To those who are weak and poor, underprivileged in society, I'll adopt the weak and underprivileged culture. That's what Paul is actually saying. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that he might win some. Paul's identification and purpose for for embracing when it's appropriate the clear elements of the Jewish or Gentile culture was to win them. We will never affect anyone whom we have not won. We shouldn't go out and try and convert anybody. We should be trying to win them. So, on one occasion, you find 
Paul takes his primary disciple, a young man called Timothy, and he has him circumcised. Now, Timothy had a, a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, a Greek father, so he wasn't circumcised. Now, Paul was opposed to circumcision. In fact, he writes, circumcision gains nothing. He was a guinea. It's because he was a guinea, he had the Jews on his back. And he took this young man and had him circumcised. Obviously, Paul himself was circumcised because he was of the Jewish faith. I want to submit he was of the Jewish culture. But the reason he did that, and it wasn't a religious thing for Paul, because he knew this circumcision didn't mean anything. But it was part of the Jewish culture. Even today, I want to submit that circumcision is more a part of the culture than it is of the faith. Although they will say it's a faith issue. But he did it that he might have inroads into the Jews. What about this man, Timothy? You know, he's got a Greek father. And Paul could say, circumcised. He was circumcised as a man. That's painful. So Paul goes into the hotbed of Greek religion. Don't agree with this. Don't agree with this. You've got all these altars, they all want pulling down. Don't agree with it. I know Christians who would do that. They'd be so bold as to take their wooden soapbox stand on and condemn every altar in sight. Bear in mind that much culture has at its roots religion. Ralph Glockner, some of you may know Ralph out in India, I spend a lot of time with Ralph. I was out with him once and we went to this little restaurant. There was just us in. There just happened to be a distinguished Indian couple on the next table of all. There might have been 50 tables, two occupied, us and the next one. And Paul and Ralph was explaining about this particular town. I think it was on the Ganges. And say, he said to me, that is the sort of birth of Hinduism. This Indian overheard the conversation. He says, yes, that town is the birth of Indian culture. To Ralph, it was Hinduism. To them, it was culture. So, Paul walks into this hotbed, the culture of all these gods that pervaded a society, all these altars, and he stood up and identified with what they were doing. I see you've got an altar to the unknown God. I want to tell you about him. I know, maybe me and the zeal of my youth and many others would have stood up, stood up and said, what's this unknown God? Are you running out of names for gods? Is it just in case that somebody else comes along? No, he identifies and he introduces them to a God they didn't know, but he was the God of the heavens and the earth, the creator God, the heavenly Father who sent his son to die on a cross. And he did it because he didn't come against it. But he engaged the culture, as it were, to engage the people. Many, many people were saved. Jesus identified with both the religious and secular elements of the society in which he lived. You can look at that. You know, Jesus knew where he was at. He knew what the Sabbath rest was. He knew the Sabbath wasn't this seventh day that they so religiously observed. He knew he was the Sabbath rest. But he didn't go in saying, oh, forget all the Sabbath, forget the Sabbath, I'm the Sabbath. No, he didn't. 
He engaged it. And it says, one interesting scripture says, on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, because it was the custom of the culture, he went to the synagogue. And he took the scripture and read it. And then he said, I'm the one it's written about. Didn't actually say that, but he sat down and said, it's fulfilled in your hearing today. So he engaged. He engaged the elements of society, the way that as a community they would come together. He, he, he ate with publicans and sinners. He ate with those that maybe as Christians I'm not sure we'd want to be seen with. But in doing so, he won to himself both those in society who were well off and who were part of the group that wanted him put away. He won those to himself. And he won many parts of society that nobody else would have anything to do with. What we have to do is to learn where it's necessary to be culturally relevant. We have to be sure, I want to submit, that we are not seen to be embracing a religion but we're embracing the culture, especially when it will gain influence and entry, not simply to be seen to be different. We have, for a number of years in Keithley, had an on-the-move town centre barbecue mission. The church had come together, and right at the beginning when we first started this, about six or seven years ago, we had a time of prayer. All the churches, for a period of time, two weeks before the mission, early one morning, Seven o'clock one month, well, I think throughout a week for, a, for two weeks. And we've continued it ever since, every week for all those years. A number of, not many come, but that several churches are represented. But on this particular morning, we were praying, and this bloke stood up and prayed for God to shut the pubs. When he'd finished at the end, I just said, I want you to know, I don't want the pubs shutting. I just want the pubs transforming. I, if I want a good meal, I often go to a pub. Because that's where we'll meet society. That's where we'll have fun. That's where we'll have a good time. When you start praying, God shut the pubs down, what we're actually doing, we're trying to pull down a culture in which we live. What we have to do is to influence, engage and influence and change things. I'll close with just a few turn-offs. <laughs> we get chatting to somebody, we sat on a train, and we just get chatting to somebody, just in course of conversation. And before we know it, they're talking about Leeds United. Can't understand it. We've got to be careful what I say, I've got a church full of them. They're an odd bunch. Tom's one. And you suddenly turn around and say, oh, I'm not a bit interested in football. I just don't know a thing about Leeds United. I'm not interested. That's an immediate turn-off. We have a culture that is influenced by football. And whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, the last thing as Christians we should be doing is telling them we are not interested in what they're about. Whatever that may be. I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet. I'm just pulling examples. When I, the, uh, one job I had in Leicester, 
it was not unusual for me to spend three quarters of an hour in a lunchtime talking to a young man about tying flies. Does anybody know what I'm on about? You must be a fisher person. That's right. He's tying him away. He spent all his lunchtime. And I spent three quarters of an hour. I cannot imagine me sat on a bank with a rod fishing. But I'm asking him all sorts of questions about flies. What are these? What you've got? And, and he's telling me all sorts of different things for different things. You see, what I'm doing, I'm engaging him. And there are elements of culture. Let me just say, friends, be very slow to say, I have no interest whatever in that. The Scripture says we are to look to the interests of others. Now, what are the interests of others? The interests of others are the things that others are interested in. Facebook, I wouldn't touch with a barge pole. I just wouldn't touch it. Well, I'll tell you what, there are millions that are touching it. There are millions that are communicating through it. You know, I'm amazed at my wife. She's a flipping gadget girl. I've got a daughter that's a... I've got a daughter that's a gadget girl. I've got a granddaughter that's a flipping gadget girl. And there was a time I thought, where does it come from? I know it comes from Pat. <laughs> she sits with people like Gareth Dufty and Mark Kelly and Martin Thomas finding out the latest things to do on iPhone. <laughs> I just want a phone that will tell me how to get hold of her. She bought me a Blackberry for our wedding anniversary. I thought, oh, I love Blackberry and apple pie. It was in a flipping box. I have no idea what I'm doing with this thing. But what Pat has done, she's culturally engaging and identifying. Be careful of turn-offs. There are a whole load of them which I won't go in. I've talked enough. In summary, let me say, first of all, I hope I've said something that makes sense. We do need to engage culture if it means you're going to engage people. I want to submit, we most definitely not called to emphasize our differences, but I equally don't think we're called to just merge anonymously into a cultural situation. Let us be sensitive, folks. Let us be sensitive. The Scripture says, the one who wins a soul is wise. Is wise. You read the story of Joseph. You read the story of Daniel. Daniel, a man who loved God. He was taken, and he was asked to do things that were pagan to become part of the court. He didn't want to do it. So he was faithful. He wouldn't eat this meat. Who knows who it had been offered to? You know, he he was happy with bean soup. But in fact, at the end of his ten days, or whatever it was of bean soup, he actually looked a damn sight better than all the others that had eaten the meat. And it was a difficult argument to come against. But on the other hand, he embraced the society, the culture in which he lived, and he had a marked influence upon him. 
It's an interesting, it's easy, as I've already said, to identify culturally. I put these, I like, in, this is an Indian shirt bought in India. This is a waistcoat bought in India. I put it on delivery, although I do wear them quite often. Because it's amazing. I can, go to a, I can wear this and go to a, an Asian restaurant. The number of times I've had comments about my shirt. I wonder how many other people have been to an Asian restaurant and had a comment about the shirt you're wearing. The number of times I've had comments. I said, yeah, I bought it in India. I've had a chat. Where could I get them in Bradford? They've told me I've not yet got them. But what it's done, and I don't do it to make a point, do I? I just wear them because I like what I've unwittingly done is created a bridge to talk to somebody that identifies because this sort of clothing is a part of their culture. You don't wear this sort of stuff, embroidered stuff. We British don't wear it. It's not a part of our scene. Father, this morning I want to thank you for every person in this room that has been able to engage the culture and reach people and bring kingdom culture in. Father, I want to thank you for university students who in many ways, from a Christian point of view, can enter into that hostile environment and yet, Father, not only find acceptance, but, Father, have an influence. Father, I want to thank you for this food bank. And, Lord, we pray your blessing upon every person who has contact with this food that's on this table. Father, I pray you'll give us a wisdom. Father, I pray for each one of us that you'll help us to understand what you've been saying to us this morning. Father, if I've not said it very well, Lord, I pray that you will smooth out and straighten it out so that we understand what your heart is for us. And Father, I pray that this group of people will increasingly find inroads into the culture around them. Father, whether it's British or whether it's some culture from overseas, help them, Lord, Bless them, Lord. And Father, I pray that you will cause a multicultural society to rise up amongst his people that will embrace the culture of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, folks.